0: You are listening to the Midtown Church Podcast, a ministry that exists to make Jesus known. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, if you're a guest, we're in this series, in this great letter that's fun and exciting and weird and strange. Um, and uh, causes us to consider some topics that uh, perhaps we wouldn't on our own. That will be the case again today. Let me read 1 Corinthians chapter 7. We're looking at verses 1 to 9 today. Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you to be because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Some of you may be uh, familiar with the name Malcolm Gladwell. You know that name? Author, Canadian, great hair. You know what I'm talking about? Malcolm Gladwell. He's written many popular books. Uh, Some of you, I'm sure, have read some of them. One of the books that he wrote is called Outliers. And in Outliers, what he argues for is something called the 10,000-hour rule. Basically, what his argument is, and he gives different examples of it, is that if you want to become very proficient at something, you need to at least put in 10,000 hours of right practice uh, to reach that goal. And he he uses some examples. Uh, The example he, he begins with in the book is the example of the Beatles who, before they hit the big time, spent thousands of hours playing nowhere clubs around Liverpool before the British invasion hit with them. That's what Bill Gates did, spending thousands of hours punching computer code before he launched Microsoft. It's what surgeons do before they cut into their first patient. It's what Tiger Woods did before winning the the 1997 Masters by 12 shots. The 10,000-hour rule. It's all a lie, though. That's why I bring it up. It's all a lie. Uh, Don't be deceived. I don't believe it. And the reason why is because I've been married for 28 and a half years. That's 249,660 hours and counting. And I'm nowhere close to being an expert. On the topic of marriage. But here's the thing as we go to our text, nor were the Corinthians. Do you see what I just did there? That's a segue as we go to our text. The Corinthians weren't experts either on the topic of marriage and things connected to it. And so what they did, I'm going to come out of this. I can only stay behind there for so long. What they did is they, and you can see this in verse one, is they wrote a letter to Paul. And in that letter, they had a bunch of questions that they needed answers for. And what chapters 7 to 11 is, it's a chunk of scripture within this grander letter where Paul addresses their questions one by one. And we're going to address them as we come to them. Um, the question, however, that we are going to look at in detail over the weeks ahead in chapter 7 deals specifically about marriage, remarriage, singleness, divorce, widowhood, celibacy, and the like. The question he addresses in today's passage, more specifically even than that, shows up in verse 1. Just put your eyes down in verse 1. It's seen in the quotation marks. You see the question contained there? It reads like a statement, almost reads like an answer to a question. And that is, he writes, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And so what Paul is doing here is what he did last week. If you were here, he's quoting back to them what he had received in their letter. Last week, he was quoting back to them what he had heard them say. Here, he's quoting back what they had written. What is the question exactly, though? Well, it's not a question about sexual immorality, Because Paul's already addressed that. That was last week and the the weeks before. And it's not exactly a question about marriage either. Although Paul does answer it later in the context of marriage. Instead, it's a question specifically about singleness and celibacy. I really like... Some of you may use the New Living Translation... I really like how the New Living Translation translates verse 1. You can see it on the screen behind me. When it translates verse 1 as, Now, about the questions you asked in your letter, yes, it is good to live a celibate life. I like that because it really captures the sense of what Paul is writing here. And I, I use that word sense purposely. Because when you translate from one language to another, it's not enough just to find out the definition of a word, but the sense in which which it's being used. Later translations of the NLT translate verse 1 as, yes, it is good to abstain from sexual relations. Same idea, though. For abstaining from sexual relations is the definition of celibacy. That phrase, sexual relations, is actually just one word in the Greek. It's the word hapto, which means literally touch. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. That's why I say sense is really important. Because how is the word touch being used? In what sense? Well, it's being used in a sexual sense here. A biblical sense. It's good for a man not to touch a woman in that way. Yes, it's good. Verse 8 makes it very clear what Paul is talking about. Let me read verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. So they're not asking about abstaining from sexual relations in general, but choosing singleness and celibacy as a way of life. Paul, is that okay? And Paul says, it is good to remain single as I am. Why would they be asking, though? Why the question? Well, let me give you some thoughts. This is my guessing, presuming some things. This is just kind of throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing if something sticks. So let me give you some reasons, possibly, why they asked the question. The first reason, Genesis 1.28. The very first command in the Bible, be fruitful and multiply. Tough to be fruitful and multiply if you're living a life of singleness and celibacy. But maybe they're wondering, is it okay? Is it okay for us to disregard that and choose this life instead? Maybe they're wrestling with it. A second reason perhaps, and this is very common today as well, pressure from from family, friends, and the church to get married. And maybe they... They wonder if it's okay not to. Parents want grandkids, right? Parents worry, worry about their kids being alone. Friends want you to find somebody so you can do couple things together. And the church so often holds up marriage as the ideal and everything as second best. So maybe they were looking for some support. Maybe they were wondering, is it okay to swim against the tide? Some of you may ask that question, Maybe asking that question yourself. So that's another reason, possibly, or another reason on top of that, past experience. Maybe some had grown up in a situation where they saw the marriage or the marriages around them and have concluded, I don't want that. Is it okay if I say no to that? Paul also refers to widows, people who have lost spouses, right? Maybe, maybe they're thinking, I don't, I don't want to get remarried. I, 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 I've had my spouse. I love my spouse. I miss my spouse. I don't want to get married. Nicole has told me if she dies, I have to get remarried. I said, no, I'm not getting remarried. I get a dog and a golf membership. That's what I'm getting. Everything will be fine in my, in my life. You think I'm kidding? <laughs> I'd wait a couple of days, but a little history on marriage. A little history on marriage in the Roman Empire. What do, we, what do we need to know that helps us have at least some context about what's going on? Several different types of marriages in the Roman culture at this time. One of those marriages was marriages between slaves, Uh, One-third of the population was made up by slaves in the Roman Empire, so this is very commonplace. Uh, A a relationship between slaves was called a tent relationship. This was a marriage that was either brought together by the slave owner or permitted by the slave owner, but only lasted as long as the slave owner permitted Another marriage was a common law type of marriage called a usus, us. No ceremony, no pomp and circumstance, nothing like that. It was simply a transfer of ownership of the woman to the man after one year living together. Which gives you a sense, right, of how they viewed women at that time. Another type of marriage was called, and I'm going to butcher this a little bit, it's in Latin, confariatio. That's not bad, confariatio. It it was reserved for Roman citizens. Very formal. In fact, much of what we do in our wedding ceremonies today mirrors it. In fact, the Roman Catholics, the Catholic Church, borrowed what they made a part of the ceremony. Both families were involved. A matron accompanied the bride. Vows were shared. A veil was worn. A ring was placed on the third finger of the left hand. There was a bridal bouquet. There was a wedding cake. Sounds very familiar. However, even if married under that, that formal ceremony, the wonder, the beauty, the pomp, and the circumstances of that, Divorce was very common at this time. One historian I wrote, um, or uh, read this this week, writes that it wasn't impossible for men and women to have been married and divorced up to 20 times. Just think about the Samaritan woman when we read her story. Married six times, probably living in a usus, a common law type situation with a seventh. Maybe her story wasn't as unusual as we may first think. And so maybe the Corinthians growing up in this culture were thinking that it would be better to remain single than to put myself under that. Think about if you are a woman. I don't want to be treated as property. Maybe you're a widow again. I don't want to go through that again. Heartbreaking. Those types of reasons. Let me give you another. Perhaps... And this, I think, is a reason that holds perhaps even more water than that. Perhaps there were some who understood that marriage was a high calling and not to be entered lightly. Maybe that's the situation. Matthew 19 Jesus is confronted by some religious leadership of the day and they ask him a question uh, about divorce. Not unusual, understanding the times makes sense. These were Jewish individuals. Their law said that if you give your wife a certificate of divorce, you could get divorced. You're you're doing everything according to the law. And so men would do that often, right? Have multiple marriages, but they're okay before God because they did and followed the rule of the law. So they came to Jesus and asked Jesus, when can a man get remarried? What's your feeling about divorce? Jesus said, whoever divorces his wife and he presses in, by the way, on the culture. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. That's his answer. The disciples are there. They're listening to this. And this is how they respond to what Jesus said. And again, it gives you a sense of the culture. They said to him, Matthew 19.10, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it is better not to marry. Like, if that's the only exception, I'm staying single. So maybe that's a reason. And maybe the Corinthian people had heard about Jesus teaching on marriage. And perhaps Paul, and I would think he would have, taught them on marriage too. And so they're wondering, maybe it's better to remain single, like the disciples thought about. One last possible reason, asceticism. What is asceticism? Asceticism is severe denial of the body. Body bad. So deprive the body of things like sex, marriage, food, and so forth. This type of thought, this type of teaching had already started getting into the church. In fact, Paul writes the following to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage. There it is and require abstinence, there it is, from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The teachings of demons. If I were to ask you, and you didn't know this text, what would the teachings of demons be? You'd probably come, I would think you would probably come up with all sorts of very horrific things. Ghoulish things. Demonic things. And yet Paul says here, teachings of demons includes things like forbidding marriage and abstaining from certain food. Why would that be the teachings of demons? It's the teaching of demons because it's the reversal of what God has created. And that's what Satan is all about. Satan, excuse me, God creates... First union he creates is marriage. And he wants to build society on marriage and the family. He goes from small to big, not big to small. Our society loves big to small. His society, his kingdom, small to big. What would the teaching of demons do? Get rid of it. Get rid of marriage. Get rid of the family. That's why it's the teachings of demons. Our society today is trying to redefine marriage, and the family, and we shouldn't be surprised. This had already started weaving its way into the church. In contrast to this, the author of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4, writes, marriage should be held in honor by all. With all of that as background, let's take a look at how Paul responds to their question. So remember the question, Paul, is it okay, man? Is it okay to choose celibacy with singleness, singleness with celibacy? His first response, we've already heard, singleness with celibacy is good, not second best, it's good. I have to resist jumping ahead in the chapter and laying out the benefits of singleness. We'll get to those in a couple of weeks For now, just hear what Paul is saying, that it is good for the unmarried and the widow to remain single as he was. Are there bad reasons to remain single? Yeah, lots of them. Selfishness, fear of commitment, low view of marriage, wrong priorities, believing false teaching about what marriage is and isn't. You could come up with more on your own, I'm sure, and You'll do that this week in your CGs. And then there are hard reasons why people remain single. There are people who choose singleness, and then there are people who are single but want to be married. And that's hard. (laughs) It's really hard. And then there are people who have gone through a divorce and see no biblical allowance for remarriage. We'll see that next week in verses 10 and 11. That is hard, too. I've had to counsel in situations like that. It's hard. But singleness with celibacy is the right, with right reasons, is good. And therefore, those who choose singleness or are single currently, but hoping to be married one day, need to hear that. They need to hear that singleness is good. And that includes, they need to hear that from us, mom and dad. good. Marriage is good. But don't pressure your kids towards marriage because you want grandkids. Don't put that on your kids, man. Or that you in some way, shape, or form think that it reflects badly on you or on your kids. God may have something in mind for your kids that only singleness allows, for a time or a lifetime. What they also need is what we all need, and that is community, and a spiritual family, and a loving and loving encouragement and affirmation from the church. I. I I said in the first gathering, I think single ministries and churches are unbiblical. I I take that back. I don't think they're unbiblical, but I don't think they're really helpful to sequester a group of singles away from the the couples. I don't think that's the church. I, I just don't think it is. I think the beauty of your CGs or whatever else is that you got singles and you got couples coming together and you're learning from one another and you're appreciating what each other is going through. We need to do life together. That 70-year-old needs to learn from the 20-year-old who's single and they're married, and vice versa. So singleness with celibacy is good. Second comment from Paul, verse 2, singleness with celibacy is hard. Take a look at verse 2. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. What do we do with this? I mean, is Paul saying that if you can't resist the temptation to have sex while single, then get married? Is that his answer? That it's better to get married, a better choice to get married than having sex outside of marriage. Is that what Paul is saying? Yes. That's what he's saying. But that's not all he says on marriage. He has a lot to say on marriage in other places in the Bible, as does the rest of the Bible. There's a lot on marriage in the Bible. Um, We just must appreciate the context and the question that he's answering here. What's not debatable for Paul, however, is having sex while single. It's a non-starter for Paul. May it never be. What is debatable is whether you should choose singleness and celibacy over marriage. And his answer to that question is, it depends. Good if you choose it. Good if you don't. Just know that it's hard if you choose it. And if the temptation, while you've chosen it, is so hard that you go back on your commitment and go, I'm going to get married now, Paul goes, great. Better choosing that than choosing the alternative. And so, no, Paul isn't saying marriage simply exists to satisfy the urge of having sex, but it is the only relationship that gives allowance for having sex. Really quick, what are the reasons for marriage? Let me give you five, very quick, rat-a-tat these. First, multiplication. One of the reasons for marriage Men are to leave their uh, wives, men are to leave their (laughs) parents. That's a whole other sermon, which would be bad. Um, Men are to leave their parents, join with their wives, become one flesh in that order, and have babies. Multiplication. Be fruitful and multiply. Like I said earlier, first command of the Bible. Second, a second reason for marriage is gratification. Husbands and wives are to enjoy one another in all ways, physically, mentally, relationally, and so on. Read the Song of Songs. It's a beautiful book on this topic. Collaboration is another reason for marriage. Partnership, oneness, companionship, removing the not good of aloneness is another reason. Is that the only way that we can remove aloneness? No, but it's one of the reasons and one of the ways. Another reason for marriage is representation, meaning that it is to serve as a picture of Jesus' love for his bride, the church. And I've said this before, but I'll repeat it again this morning. When God created... Adam and Eve, brought them together, first marriage. Paul talks about that marriage and what marriage is all about in Ephesians 5. And he said when God did that, he had in mind Jesus and his love for his bride, the church, first. He had that in mind first. Not the first marriage. That first marriage is a foreshadowing of the accomplishment of Jesus in his death for his bride, the church. One last reason Blamification, which isn't a word. I'm using it because I like it. This goes back to verse two. Marriage exists, one of the reasons. Marriage exists is to keep us from the blame, blame of sexual immorality. But not the only reason. So what do we have? Two so far. We're gonna do four. Singleness with celibacy is good, singleness with celibacy is hard. Third response from Paul, celibacy in marriage is wrong. When I wrote this point down this week, I put myself in the mind of a 20-year-old who would hear that and go, what? Old man? Like, is that a thing? A husband and wife not having sex. I mean, I don't want to be crass, but think about when you're 20, right? Think about marriage. Think, I'll, I'll, get, I'll make love three times a day every day before breakfast and then go to work. That's what your mindset is as a 20-year-old. So you're hearing this and going, this doesn't make any sense. This is a thing. The answer is it was then and it is today. How do we deal with this? Why is it? Well, I'm not gonna answer this from a medical perspective. For there are medical and there are physical and there are psychological reasons for why this takes place. That's above my pay grade, though. I'll stick to the text. Let me give you some reasons. Uh, excuse me, let me give you some reasons for why this is the case coming out of this text or understanding the culture at the time. One is, and I've touched upon this already, celibacy was seen as a Higher and more spiritual call. Some husbands and wives perhaps had bought into this idea, this erroneous teaching that you were spiritually superior if you were sexually abstinent. This was heightened, especially, and we'll see this next week if you were a Christian married to a non Christian and you thought, I shouldn't have sex now with that person. Again, we'll look at that next week. It'll be interesting. In response, what does Paul say to this idea? Well, take a look at verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. That's his instruction. Conjugal. Sounds like a prison sentence. <laughs> what does con- conjugal mean? It means obligation. Literally. It means debt. Husbands and wives have a sexual obligation, a sexual debt that they are to pay their spouse. A second reason, they saw their bodies as their own. Paul responds to that in verse 4. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, What the wife does, in that culture, that verse, would blow the men away. They'd be like, yeah, first half, absolutely. Paul presses in on their mindset. He's absolutely redefining marriage. If you ever hear people say, Paul, Jesus, other people in the New Testament placated in their culture, no they didn't. They changed the culture, they pressed into the culture, and this is one way. This is mutual submission. This is shared authority. Last week we read that the body is for the Lord and the Lord is for the body. And and in the deepest and the most spiritual sense, that is true. But in the context of marriage, our bodies are one another's. And it dishonors not only the marriage, but God himself when a spouse chooses for whatever reason to not make themselves available sexually to their spouse. One uh, commentator puts it this way. I'll read this for you. Sexual expression within marriage is not an option or an extra. It is certainly not, as it has sometimes been considered, a necessary evil which, which spiritual Christians engage only to procreate children. It is far more than a physical act. God created it to be the expression and experience of love on the deepest human level and to be a beautiful and powerful bond between a husband and wife. You are not your own. One important add-on, however, under this point that sadly is necessary today in certain places um, Husbands and wives are to love one another. And they're not to demand of each other. Husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way. Wives are to respect and honor their husbands. All of that to say, don't be too quick to pull this verse out. You know what I mean? Come here. Your body is mine. I got a verse. Try that. See how that goes. We're to love, understand, care, nurture, serve. But the more important point in this that also bears repeating is that if you think you can withhold sex in a marriage because your body is your body, you're wrong. You are one flesh. When you were dating, you were red and they were purple, or red and blue. Now you're purple. You're one flesh. There's no, it's my body anymore. Additionally, as we saw last week, sex isn't merely a physical act, but a spiritual one. And to abstain from it is to remove something wonderfully spiritual from your marriage. So homework assignment, couples, today. Third reason why, <laughs> I heard one snicker. You guys are really scared. You're a nervous group. You're a nervous group. It's okay. It's okay. I'm on a lot of painkillers today, so uh, I'm, apt to say, I'm apt to say anything. I've never had more fun preaching in my life. No, that's not true. <laughs> a third reason, sheepers, <laughs> third reason why they were abstaining is they didn't understand the temptation of the demonic. Take a look at verse 5. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps, important word, perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. I love that verse. I used to think that this verse was speaking about marriages that were going bad and they had a time of separation, get counsel, pray, and all of that. Is that a good thing? Does that happen? Yes, I think it's a good thing. I just don't think this is about that. I think this is speaking of a spiritual intensive. Perhaps a time of fasting and prayer where you give up all physical pleasures and you pursue the Lord because that's what fasting is. That's the definition of fasting. You give up something so you can spend more time pursuing the Lord. We see examples of this uh, in the scriptures. In uh, Exodus chapter 19, when the law was given to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, I'm going to come down the mountain And in preparation, I want your people to consecrate themselves by washing their clothes and abstaining from sexual intercourse for three days. We see something similar take place in Joel chapter 2. So something maybe perhaps is taking place like that here. Regardless, what is clear is that it needs to be a limited and agreed upon time. Meaning you come together. You go, this is what I'm thinking. This is what I'm going to do. Are you okay with this? Perhaps they are. And perhaps they're not. It's coming together. Agree upon it. Then after that, come back together, being aware that Satan may use that abstinence as an opportunity to tempt. So where are we? I've given you three responses from Paul. Paul. Celibacy, singleness and celibacy is good. It's hard, should never play a role whatsoever in a marriage. Here's the last point. Singleness with celibacy is a gift. Verses six and seven. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. What is Paul saying in verse 6 when he says, as a concession, not as a command? Paul is saying this is an option, but don't hear this. as If you choose to get married, you're not breaking a command. You have the choice, but if you say, no way, I want to get married and have kids and a family and do all that by God's grace, great. If you don't, great. That's verse 6. But in verse 7, he calls singleness a gift from God. Harisma. Charisma. Charismatic. Gift. What is a gift? Grace. Same word he uses to talk about spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which we will get to eventually. What Paul is saying here is this too is a gift of God. It too is a spiritual gift. It's a gift from God. Jesus said the same thing that Matthew 19 text I took you to before where the disciples respond to Jesus saying except for sexual immorality you commit adultery they go it's better to get better to remain single and not get married look at the response of Jesus from Matthew 19:11 not everyone can receive this saying but only those to whom it is given what is a spiritual gift Well, what a spiritual gift is, is a Holy Spirit infusion of extra grace in a specific area. That's what a gift is. A Holy Spirit infusion of extra grace in a particular area. So put it all together. Singleness with celibacy is good. Singleness with celibacy is hard. So extra grace is required. But if it is a gift from God, then we as God's people should never consider those who are single as living in a second-class state, should we? Or something less than ideal. It's been gifted to them. But that call for you who are single is the same. Your call is to recognize that your place that you're in right right now is not second class or less than ideal. For a time or a lifetime. How, How do you close a message like this? Well, one way you could close it, the way I'm choosing to close it today, is to remind you that while here, Jesus was single, in spite of what the Da Vinci Code says. Jesus was single. And Hebrews 4 tells us that he, in every respect, was tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Which means, at the very least, he understands your singleness... And he sympathizes with the weaknesses that your singleness at times reveals. And it does, doesn't it? If you're single, doesn't your singleness at times reveal weakness? So come to him. Bring your weaknesses to a high priest that sympathizes and sits on a seat of grace. But... It's just as true, interestingly enough, to say that while here, Jesus was married as well. He calls himself a groom who had come for his bride. It's the reason why he gave, why he didn't fast or his disciples. This is like a wedding feast going on, man. You don't fast at a wedding feast. The groom's getting his bride. It's fantastic. It's a a party, not fast. And therefore, it's safe to say that Jesus understands marriage too. And his wife can be a pain in the butt. Right? Wife? Bride? And so I think it's safe to say that Jesus sympathizes with the weaknesses and struggles that our marriages reveal in us too. And they do, don't they? And so to all of you, <laughs> marrieds and singles, I invite you to come to him and receive grace upon grace and mercy to help you in the times of need you find yourself in because of your singleness and marriage. One last comment on this, tied to this: uh, I'm 56 and a half years old. I know, it's crazy. I don't know how that's crazy, but you can look at it two ways. Wow, you look a lot older. Um, so I've been married 28 and a half years. I'm, I've, I've been married essentially the same amount of time I was single. I got married when I was 28. In fact, I'm married a little bit longer now. So it's been a long time since I was single. And therefore, I've forgotten a lot about what single people deal with. But I know they deal with a lot. It's tough to be single at times. Loneliness. Loneliness. The hard things I talked about. Wanting to be married never finding that someone. Hard. Being a part of churches that idolize marriage. Being in families where you're pressured to get married. It's hard. Hard to be single. And most of us who have been married a long time, we've forgotten what that feels like. But, There are things that I experience as a married man that you as a single person don't understand. The the pain with raising children at times. Times where you don't want to be in the same room with your spouse. The, the, The burden of caring for a family at times. So there are things that you probably can't appreciate to the same level that I can as I experience it, but there are things that you're experiencing at the same time that I can't appreciate because I'm not experiencing. It. So what's the counsel of it? We need to be a body. And we all go through things together. They may be different, but they go, we go through things together together that are they're difficult. And we need one another. We need one another. And what here's the problem with singleness and marriage. Here's where. And I'll close with this, where our issues come a lot of the times, not all the time, but a lot of the times. For, for you who are single, part of the issue in your life, single in your single life that proved, makes it more difficult, is you're wanting someone to do for you what only Jesus can. That the emptiness and loneliness you're feeling, it just, I just need to meet somebody. And perhaps your singleness right now is where God has you because he wants to reveal some things to you that are only found in Jesus. And for the married couples, same problem. For we expect our spouses to be someone only Jesus is. So we've got the same issues, right? So what's the takeaway? We need Jesus. That's the takeaway, man. We need Jesus. We need to be satisfied with him. Then we put less pressure on our spouses or that dude or that lady. So what's the proper way to respond to this? Come to Jesus. Remember Jesus. Eat Jesus. Drink Jesus. That's, that's the right response. So would you rise as we respond and we come to Jesus and receive his grace upon grace? Let me pray for us. So, so Jesus, that's what we want. We want more of you. We want to be satisfied with you. It's not wrong to want relationships. It's not wrong to be married. It's not wrong to want somebody in our lives. That's, that's a good thing. You've given us one another, but it's, it's wrong when we make it the ultimate thing. When we make people our savior instead of you, you're our savior. We're not to look for saviors in any other place. So we, we look to you. We're reminded of you. We want to come back to you. Forgive us for elevating people, spouses, boyfriends, girlfriends to places that they shouldn't be. And thank you for loving us enough to keep us in these places uh, until we learn those lessons. Because you're a God who not only justifies us, you're a God who sanctifies us. And is committed to sanctifying and cutting off those things that entangle us. So thank you for loving us that much. And so as we respond, we want to worship you, come to you, remember you, Jesus. Give us more of you, Jesus, by way of your spirit. And I pray for these things. In in the great name of you, Jesus, amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Midtown, please go to midtownchurch.com.